The Astrea Trilogy Written and read by Seymour Hamilton Book Two The Men of the Sea Chapter Ten In Which Lindy Goes to Sea When Lindy and Damon reached the inn it was early afternoon. Walt was away on some errand he hadn't mentioned to her. They went into the kitchen where Damon sat down heavily at the table and looked around him. Beer? he asked. Food first, said Lindy firmly, with tea to wash it down. Beer later. Too exhausted to reply, he watched her fry eggs and potatoes, butter slabs of toast, and heat the kettle for tea. He ate and drank because she put it in front of him, then because he was hungry, finally because he enjoyed it. Good stuff. Thanks, Lindy, he mumbled through a mouthful. She was peeling and chopping vegetables for chowder when Damon finally looked up from his plate. Holding his second mug of tea in both hands, he silently watched her work, taking the time to observe her more carefully than he remembered doing at the castle. She seemed softer to him, more approachable than the young woman who had fought alongside him in the burning hall. He was contemplating the third button on her shirt, which was under pressure from her breasts, when Lindy stopped chopping potatoes into chunks, secured the button with one hand, while pointing her knife at him with the other. Talk, she said firmly. Acutely aware of her level, blue-eyed stare, Damon looked into his mug of tea. For the first time in months, perhaps years, he was blushing. You could start from when we said good-bye, prompted Lindy. Um, yes. Well, it didn't work out quite the way we hoped. The learneds, and the mayor too, saw through what we'd done to make it look as if I wasn't at the fire. Carl must have gotten to Bob the Swab. Probably told him there was no point in covering for Gar and Strayer when they went around to reward him. Carl? So he made it out of the hall? Damon nodded. He got out, and so did his two knife-men, both cut, one of them badly but they're all well enough to talk up how they were victims of an attack by the villainous artists helped by three students, Knox, Sandy, and me. And that didn't go down too well with the two of them, because, as you know, they weren't there. Did they catch them? I don't know. I hope not. Astrea thought to send me north, you remember, so that's where I sent them, before I headed west to where I was born. Well, that didn't work out either. Why? That's a long story for another day. The short of it is that my parents are dead, and I don't get on with my uncle. Never did. Never will. So, when it was clear that I wasn't wanted, I doubled back to the castle to see if the coast was clear. That's when I found out that Sandy and Knock had gotten away, but they won't be going back. Ever. It was also why I had to leave as soon as possible. Lindy frowned. How did you find out all that, about Carl and Robert and what the learneds and the mayor did, and Eva? Eva? Damon scowled ruefully. Turns out she didn't go back to the woman's quarters. She met with Carl. That's how he knew to go to the hall. I wondered how he got there, but why? Why did she go to Carl? Well, that's complicated. Tell me. You know, I was... Well, we were... I mean... That is, Eva and me. You were lovers, so you said. Well, it was true then, or I wanted it to be. But we'd had a fight. It was about the three of you, Gar, Astrea, and you. 
She said Gar was up to something bad. She wouldn't say what, but she was very clear that I shouldn't go near any of you. But I did. So... Damon looked into his mug of tea again. So she threw you over for Carl? Damon nodded. What I don't understand is why she came to the widow Amy's to tell us that Carl had Estrella's book. It doesn't make sense. It certainly doesn't, said Lindy. But that's what women like Eva do. She relies on luck, jumping this way and that as she goes along. Luck brought Estrella to her home and got him sent to the castle where she'd always wanted to go. So she ran off with him. Meeting Gar and me was more good luck for her, because she wasn't hauled back to her village by the men sent to chase her down. You, Gar, the mayor, and the learned stupid rules were her good luck as well, because Estrella gave her the money when he couldn't get into the castle. But why did she, with me? You were the next man in her life. First boyfriends at Teamath, most likely, then Estrella, then you, now Carl. She can't imagine being without a man, even though in no time at all she starts to fight with him, because what makes her need a man also makes her want to be free of him. That's crazy. I thought she... You thought that you were special to her. You thought she dumped Estrella for you, that she loved you. The way she looked at me, the... Mm, the things we did. The bitch tricked me. She never meant a thing, she said. Not so, Damon. She meant everything she said and did. That's how she lives. She'll be whatever she thinks her latest man wants her to be, for a while. That's how she gets what she wants. The trouble is that each time she can't go on being the person she's made herself out to be, and the real Eva, the one she is under all the pretense, wants something more and different. And when she doesn't get what she wants, she looks for someone else to give it to her. Well, then, why did she sneak out to the widow Amy's house to tell us that Carl had Estrella's book? She was betting both ways. She could attach herself to whoever won. I thought maybe it was because she still felt something for Estrella. Perhaps that was part of it. Perhaps she wanted to feel that she hadn't completely sold you and Estrella out. She likes to have a high opinion of herself when she's doing something sneaky. Perhaps she was just stirring the pot to see what would happen. Any way you look at it, she's dangerous. I thought she needed me. Oh, she did, Damon, she did. She needed what you could give her, and when it looked as if you weren't able to do it any more, she traded up to Carl. Up to Carl? In a manner of speaking, Damon, from my point of view, she traded down. But she'd never see it that way. For her, you're no longer a student with expectations. You're a man on the run from people who have already decided you're guilty. Carl saw to that. True. And that's why... why he got Eva. Well, they deserve each other. Lindy swept the chopped vegetables into a pot and looked thoughtfully at Damon. How far are you ahead of them? Ahead of who? Damon, wake up! The learneds and even the mayor might let you get away, but Carl's not going to, because you and Estrella bested him. And you can be sure that Eva has told him that you came back, spoke to her, and then left again. He's likely sent people looking for you. He's probably leading the ones who are heading south, because that's the most likely direction you'd take. They're only a few hours behind you. 
Less, if they've got horses. Who's got horses? And who's this? A deep voice made them both turn to see Walt standing in the kitchen doorway. Walt, this is Damon, Astrea's friend and mine too. Damon, this is Walt. He's the innkeeper. I'm the cook. So, Astrea's friend who sounds like he's in trouble, what brings you to my galley, uh, Lindy's kitchen? Damon stood up and hunched his shoulders. I'll, I'll just leave. Thanks, Lindy. You don't need my problems. Nice to meet you, Walt. Bye. Oh, no, you don't. Not afore I know who you are and what you're doing in my pub. Astrea. Carl. I mean, I'm here because Gar died. In the fire. And Astrea and Lindy went south. So... While Damon continued to mutter incoherently, Linda spoke directly to Walt. Astrea and I worked for Gar at the castle, where he was paid to paint pictures on the walls of the Great Hall. Gar died in a fire that was set off by a student who was Astrea's enemy, for reasons that were not Astrea's fault. Before we could be caught and blamed for the fire, Astrea and I came here. Damon wanted to stay, so Astrea gave him money to bribe a taverner to say that he'd been drinking on the night of the fire, and it didn't work out. Carl, Astrea's enemy, talked the tavern out of his story, and then went to the mayor and the people in charge of the castle. So, when Damon eventually went back and found out that it was all unravelling, he came south after us. The people chasing him are probably only a few hours behind him. Hmm, less if they got horses, Walt completed her thought and then looked at her steadily. They'll also be looking for a girl with blonde hair, which don't look good for my cook. Lindy nodded. Damon had stammered into silence as Lindy spoke. He stared at Walt as if he didn't believe what he saw, looked at Lindy, shook his head, and started toward the door. Before he reached it, all three froze at the sound of heavy knocking on the taproom door. Walt moved quickly. In two of his rolling strides he was at the short side of the kitchen table, one shoulder below the tabletop, and his eyes only a little above its surface. He lifted and pushed. The table slid forward between the benches. Where the table had been, a trap-door gaped. A two-handed shove, and it was fully open. Steep steps led down into darkness. "'Get down there, the two of you. As you go, feel for a rope. Pull it. The trap-door closes. The table goes back, and you're safe.' The pounding on the door started again, this time accompanied by a huge voice. "'Would you be so good as to open the hatch and talk with us? "'We come ashore looking for one of our shipmates. "'We was sent here by Brian.' "'They're here,' said Damon, starting towards the stair under the table. "'Brian's the one who—' Lindy began. "'Lubbers from up-country don't never say ashore or hatch,' said Walt. "'I'm going to find out who's there. "'You hear me say the words up north?' "'And you're down in the cellar right quick.' "'Lindy nodded. Damon looked dubious. "'Walt went into the tap-room, leaving the kitchen door ajar. "'More pounding on the door ended with Walt's voice. "'Who are you looking for?' "'Straya. "'It's Astraea's boat. Come back to look for him. I'm sure of it.' "'In the kitchen, Lindy whispered to Damon. "'Who's he, and what's he look like?' Walt demanded. "'Tall, black curly hair, slim.' A well-spoken lad. Could have been coming from north of here. I need to hear more. 
Come in. Shut the door behind you. Lindy tiptoed to the kitchen door, cracked it open, and looked into the taproom. She saw three men, one large, with red hair that met and mingled with his beard, one older man, whose grey and black hair was held at the back of his neck with the leather string, and looming over both of them was a giant of a man, who stood with one arm held close to his side, as if he was suffering from indigestion. Lindy made a quick decision. She spoke as she entered the room. "'You're from the Molly. You're Roaring Jack, Red Ian, and Scarm. Um, Ian, um, Scar-Arm Ian.' All three turned and stared at her, open-mouthed. They spoke at once. "'Is he alive? Who are you, lass?' "'How do you know?' The last and loudest was from Roaring Jack. "'Because the men of the sea kidnapped him from my pub,' said Walt. "'Astraea and I came south because Gar had—' "'Men of the sea!' boomed Roaring Jack. "'You mean those scalpins on that great ship what grabbed Yan and Cam and near-drowned Red Ian here?' "'Could be,' said Walt. "'How is the ship rigged? Three masts, nothing but staysails between them, mainsails all the way to the truck on the aftermast,' said Skarn. "'Elusive. Did you get a look at the master?' "'More in the look,' said Red Ian. "'He had long black hair, sharp nose, mean eyes. We danced a bit before he shoved me over his side. Fast he was, and whipcord strong. I could have took him, but he stuck a knife in me.' "'Ah, Mufrid, for sure,' muttered Walt. "'We fished Ian out just in time,' said Carm. "'Bandaged him up as best we could. "'But he needs—' "'I'm fine. "'Just show him to me again, and it'll be another story.' "'Hold off now,' said Walt. "'Afore you take on Elusive and her master and crew, "'you should know that they're not the ones what's got Astraea. "'How many ships are there left?' Scarm asked. "'You know something, or you'd not ask what's left. "'Well, there's Cygnus, what's got Astraea, "'and Elusive, whose master's this big fellow's dancing partner, "'and Spindrift, that's Nash's ship, "'and Silver Swan, what they call the Dirty Duck. "'Only four. Once there was nine. "'Tidewalker, Stella, Eclipse, Sea Child, Whisper. "'All gone now.' "'Spindrift's gone, too,' said Skarm. We saw her beached, turned into a dock for a village with nobody in it. Right spooky it was, said Ridian. Could have been a plague, said Roaring Jack. Gutsy for you to go and look, and lucky too, getting away from elusive, said Walt. Luck! Roaring Jack bellowed in what he thought was a quiet query. Lindy and Walt blinked, and Damon took a step back. I'm losing my crew to scruffy, land-loving villagers and sharky, ocean-going pirates, and you call it luck? You still got your boat, but if that's her mast I've seen alongside me wharf, you'll not have much luck chasing after the ships of the men of the sea. Perhaps they don't have to, said Lindy. The ships may be coming closer. Gar said that the stone in Astraea's bracelet was brighter when there was a ship nearby like this one is. She pushed back her sleeve to reveal the green stone with its spear of light at the centre. Red Ian, Skarm, and Roaring Jack all spoke at once, Roaring Jack's question overpowering the others. Same as Strayer's. Same as Lanawar, but brighter. Where'd you get it, lass? It belonged to Gar, Astraea's uncle. Except at the time, they didn't know. 
she broke off at the sound of horses' hoofs beating hollow on the wharf outside the inn door. "'Into the galley and down the hatch,' said Walt, pushing Damon towards the kitchen. "'Candle below stairs. Follow the tunnel to the sea and wait for me there. Now, you three, sit. Not a word about the two of them. Look like you're here for the beer.' Lindy heard the end of Walt's instructions to the Molly's crew as she went through the door to where Damon waited in the kitchen. She followed him down the steep steps into the shadows that rapidly became complete darkness. Damon pulled on the rope he'd found by feel, and the trap-door closed behind them. Above it the table rumbled quietly into its usual position. They were in a cave-like cellar that was completely dark. There was no light at all to help them find the candle Walt had promised. The air smelled earthy, with overtones of seaweed. Lindy explored with outstretched hands, bumping into Damon, her fingers meeting earth, cold stones, and damp, squishy stuff that she fervently hoped was moss. "'I've found it,' whispered Damon. "'Oh, rats! I dropped it!' Lindy noticed a faint green glow coming through the left sleeve of her shirt. "'Silly of me!' she muttered, as she fumbled with the button at her wrist to let the stone in her bracelet cast its eerie light. "'What's that? Hush, Damon!' Lindy whispered. "'It's my bracelet!' Damon made a shuddering noise, and she recalled his superstitious fear of Astraea's stone the night of the fire. She went down on one knee, and the green glow dimly lit Damon's hand closing on the candle. Lindy heard the scrape of a fire-starter, and briefly saw the outline of his head. A moment later Damon stood holding a candle that was sputtering into flame. The light flickered between them, they looked at each other, and then at the cramped, walled space in which they stood. Their bodies cast confusing shadows on the dark walls as Damon cupped his hand around the flame and slowly turned around. Lindy turned her back on the candle, and the light from her bracelet glowed weirdly onto the uneven stones of a wall. She took a step forward, and the green light outlined an arch. "'This way!' whispered Damon, turning towards another tunnel opposite the one Linda was facing. "'Wait!' breathed Lindy. "'The table in the kitchen is roughly east-west, the same as the wharf outside the inn. The stairs we came down are behind me, which means that to go towards the sea we have to take the tunnel to the right. The other way must lead to Walt's beer cellar.' She heard Damon take a breath to argue. He moved the candle this way and that, and the yellow light flickered as he turned towards the opening Lindy's bracelet had revealed. Damon muttered what might have been an agreement, and then led the way into the dark, shielding the candle against a faint breath of sea-scented air. Lindy saw him stride forward into the dark, and heard a dull thud, followed by muttered cursing. She followed him, prudently lowering her head. As she moved forward in a crouching walk, Lindy decided that the tunnel had been designed for Walt, or possibly ordinary-sized men, bent over to roll barrels. She held her left arm across her chest, so that her bracelet lit Damon's back, and the earth floor below his feet. After about three careful paces, she decided that they must be below the taproom. A dozen more, and she guessed they were probably beyond the inn's foundation. To confirm her thought, she saw that instead of walls of stone, they were now walking between close-set blackened wooden posts that held back rocks and sand. She looked cautiously upward, and reasoned that the tunnel's low ceiling was the underside of the squared logs that formed the surface of the wharf. A few more paces, and the tunnel turned abruptly east. 
Level sand now glinted underfoot, making it easier for them to see where they were going. Damon moved a little faster for about another forty or fifty paces, when the tunnel turned south and started to slant downwards. "'I can see something,' said Damon. He stopped and held the candle to one side. Lindy looked around his shoulder and saw dim light ahead. The tunnel slanted downwards for a dozen more stooping paces until the sides turned into wooden pillars, each thicker than a man's thigh, set three or four paces apart to support close-fitted squared timbers above their heads, higher than she could reach. As her eyes adjusted to the diffuse light, she made out another line of wooden columns which had the spaces between them roughly planked with vertical slabs of wood, through which came dim daylight. They were standing on a strip of sand, with head-sized stones piled knee-high on either side. Ahead of them water-rounded pebbles formed a tiny beach, where sea-water sloshed over rocks. More wooden pillars stood in gently pulsing sea-water. Lindy decided that she was looking towards the close-set wooden pilings that formed the seaward end of the finger-wharf to the east of the inn. "'Good to stand up straight,' said Damon. "'Even better to sit down.' said Lindy, choosing one of the flatter rocks. "'What do we do now?' "'Wait for Walt.' "'Can we trust him?' "'He and I got off to a bad start, because he told the men of the sea where Astraea was. But now he knows that was a mistake, and I think he wants to make up for it. You're sure?' "'I'd be happier if I hadn't left my staff behind.' Damon chose a stone and sat on it then got up and started moving stones about to make himself more comfortable. They clashed together, the sound echoing hollowly around them. Don't do that, Damon. We don't know who might hear. They sat listening to the sound of waves finding their way between the pilings and lapping on the seaweedy rocks. Soon there were also soft slapping noises as they swatted away sandflies. Eventually Lindy's curiosity got the better of her, and she started a whispered conversation. Damon! Why didn't you stay at your home? Couldn't. My family is, well, my uncle sent me to the castle to get rid of me. Wouldn't they even hide you? Damon grunted, and she changed the subject. Why did you come south? Um, Astraea. You were looking for him? It was what he said when, when we buried Gar. Not just the words. Some of them are what people always say at funerals. I mean... When he talked about what Gar had given him, not just the drawing and painting, although that was important to him, but also something else. I forget exactly what he said. It was something like him always carrying Gar with him in his mind. But it was better than that. You were there, Lindy. You know what he said. Lindy nodded, but could not speak. She tried to remember that candle-lit scene in the woods, when they had taken turns digging Gar's grave, with his body on the ground beside them. Estrella had climbed into the hole so that they could lower the sheet-wrapped shape gently down to him. Damon's words took her back to kneeling on the freshly dug earth, reaching to offer Estrella her hand so that he could climb out of the grave. Light from the widow Amy's candle had gleamed on his tears as he spoke of how much Gar had meant to him, and to her as well. When he was done, he had asked her if she wanted to say anything, and she had shaken her head, because his words had been enough. Then, gently at first, Damon and Astraea had filled in the grave, while she held the candle so that it didn't cast light into the hole. Damon saw Lindy's head droop, and he let a silence fall between them, 
When eventually she looked back up at him, he continued his explanation. So, when we'd buried Gar, and we all had to leave, I wanted to go with you and Estrella, but I got to thinking that maybe I'd just be butting in, so I went home instead. And when that didn't work out, there was nowhere else for me to go. I told myself that so long as he kept on knowing what to do next, maybe I could help. It wasn't so much that I decided to go find him. It was the only thing left. What do you mean, Damon? You have friends? Friends who left and didn't come back. Family, an uncle, who had turned me over to the mayor and the castle without even listening to my side of the story. There was a long silence. Damon rearranged himself so that he could lie back against the stones. I think it's working, he said. I mean, things have kind of picked me up and moved me along. First I met you. Then along comes Estrella's boat. Now it's Walt and his secret passage, and it's all because of Estrella. There's a simpler explanation, whispered Lindy, and then paused when she heard a small snore. So she continued the thought in her mind. We're all on the run from what passes for justice, but which in reality is neither fair nor just. She inspected the logic of her thoughts, and then shook her head as she came to the conclusion that her reason for taking the blind chance offered by Walt was far more direct. She wanted to be with Estrella, as she'd never wanted anyone or anything before. She leaned her forearms on her knees and closed her eyes, conjuring Estrella's face up from her memory. She inventoried his tightly curled black hair, his eyes almost the same green as the stones in their bracelets. She cupped her right hand over the metal setting that protected her green stone as if it were a lifeline connecting them, and in that position she slid into something between sleep and waking. Sudden noises over her head jerked Lindy into consciousness. She identified the thud of bare feet, and a moment later decided that the rumbling was a barrel being rolled on the surface of the dock. She looked over at Damon, who was still sleeping with the complete relaxation of someone who had walked the night away. She stood and took a pace forward to the mouth of the tunnel. As she looked up at the blackened timbers, she felt her dress move in a cold draught. One hand reached automatically for her staff until she remembered that she had left it in the kitchen in her haste. She looked about her for a substitute, but saw only a slender tree-branch floating in the water that had now risen almost halfway to where she stood. She stooped, selected a rounded stone that fitted her hand, and stepped behind one of the wooden columns that was thick enough to conceal her if she stood side on. Hoping that anyone coming out of the tunnel would have difficulty seeing in the dim light, she looked at Damon, wondering whether she should have wakened him. With a little shrug, she ruefully accepted that it was too late to change what little plan she had. A dark shape appeared in the tunnel's mouth. "'Forget something, Lindy?' Walter's hoarse whisper came out of the darkness. Then the short, squat figure emerged into the dim light, her staff held out in front of him. Damon woke with something between a cough and a snort, scrambled to his feet, upsetting several stones, which clacked together sharply. "'Easy there, lad. It's me, Walt, all by me lonesome. Where's Lindy?' "'Dunno. Lindy?' "'Shh, Damon. I'm here. Thanks, Walt.' She stepped out from behind the post and took her staff from Walt. Now that all three of them were on the sand at the tunnel mouth, she saw that Walt bulked even larger than usual. A heavily loaded pack stuck out like a shelf behind his shoulders and extended down to the backs of his knees. Even as she noticed his load, he was shrugging it onto the sand beside him and wiping his knuckles on his breeks. Lindy, lass, take that stick of yours and wrap three times above your head. 
and you might want to put down the rock in your other hand what you was planning to bounce off on someone's head. Lindy did as she was asked, and almost immediately a line of bright light appeared behind her, widening swiftly into a view of late-night afternoon sky, bright enough to make all three of them squint. A head and shoulders appeared in the bright square above them, and a very loud whisper echoed around the space below the wharf. "'The Molly's alongside. Nobody's round. You can come up now.' Stones clinked as Walter disappeared behind the first row of posts and reappeared holding a ladder, which he leaned against the lip of the hole above them. "'Listen, you two. When you're up, keep bent over so you're no taller than me. That way them as wants the lad's hide won't see ye. Up you go.' Damon, still not fully awake, did as he was told. Lindy watched him climb cautiously upwards. "'You sure you want to do this, Lindy? I can hide you out till they leave. For that matter, I could just whistle em over and hand em the lad here, and we can tell em he's the one they're looking for.' Lindy turned swiftly, her staff in one hand. Walt raised one arm to protect his head, chuckled, and offered her the end of a rope. "'Thought not. Does your credit. Up you go. Take this with you, and belay it to the staghead you'll see right close.' Lindy reached down, took a handful of the back hem of her skirt, and tucked it into the front of her waistband. She put one hand on the ladder. The other held her staff, so she clamped her teeth around the rope's end Walt had given her, and climbed the ladder, wondering what a staghead might be. Five rungs up, her eyes were above the level of the dock, and she saw three pairs of bare feet attached to hairy calves below salt-stained breeches. A huge hand reached down, she took it, and then winced as her whole weight dangled from one arm. She endured being hauled upward for a heartbeat, and then she was looking up into the face of the red-haired giant. His teeth were bared into a grimace that would have been terrifying, had it not immediately been replaced by a shy smile. "'All right, then?' he asked, letting go of her and pressing his left arm against his side. Lindy would have asked him the same question if she had not been taking the rope from between her teeth. "'Staghead?' she asked, looking for an opportunity to spit rope fibres out of her mouth. "'Here, lass, we'll handle that.' Roaring Jack took the rope and waved her away from the hole in the dock. Remembering Walt's instructions, Lindy went down on one knee before looking around her. She was in the lee of a shoulder-high wooden wall that ran down the west side of a finger-dock, blocking her view of the town. Low on the horizon, the sun was a blurred yellow disk behind high cloud. She heard the creak and soft thud of a boat nudging its rope fenders, and when she turned seaward saw a mast rising and falling above the edge of the wharf. A heavy thump made her turn around. Walt's pack lay on the dock beside the Molly's crew, with Scarm coiling the rope she had brought to the surface of the dock. Red Ian and Roaring Jack reached down, grunted at the same moment, and Walt appeared like a jack-in-the-box. He looked up at the two red-haired men and grinned. Hmm. First time in a long while since anyone's hauled me off me feet. Now let's get on board, skipper, and be away afore some busybody decides to come over for a better look. He took off his boots, picked up his pack as if it were filled with feather pillows, and headed towards the molly. You coming too? Got to show you the boat passage around the island to where you can overnight, more private-like than heading out in full view of the town. Take your boots off and keep low, you two. Lindy saw Red Ian glance at Scarm and receive a small shrug for an answer. As she undid her boots, she looked into Roaring Jack's face, which was level with her as he stood in the Molly's cockpit, one hand on the tiller. A gust of wind pushed his beard and hair across his face, 
Blue eyes stared back at her from under bushy eyebrows with a puzzled expression, like someone in shock. "'Can we come aboard now?' she asked. Roaring Jack nodded slowly, as if the question demanded serious thought. One hand holding her staff, Lindy timed her move to the boat's rise and fall on the waves. She stepped from the dock onto the cabin roof to the deck, ducked under the boom and jumped into the cockpit, where she laid her staff on the cockpit sole beside a pair of oars and a boat-hook. A moment later Damon attempted the same manoeuvre, but with less success. Red Ian's huge hand grabbed him by the back of the shirt just before he slid off the cabin. He arrived beside Lindy, off-balance and irritated by his own clumsiness. Walt's voice came from the dock. "'Let go the lines ashore when you're ready, skipper. Port tack to get her off.' He shoved the molly's bow with a large bare foot, and then stepped aboard. The jib filled, and a moment later the main. Lindy watched him move along the weather rail in a fluid motion quite unlike his awkward rolling gait ashore. "'Hm, he's done that before,' muttered Damon. "'Often.' "'Now, Skipper, bring her about, head for the eastern end of the island, and I'll show you a nice little cove where you can lie easy and protected for the night.' The Molly's crew turned her through the wind's eye and settled her efficiently onto a new course. Red Ian sat on the cabin top, one shoulder held lower than the other. Skarm swung down into the increasingly crowded cockpit and back towards the companionway, pulling Walt's pack after him with his good arm. When Lindy moved to help him, he beckoned her to follow him down into the cabin. Together they heaved the pack onto the lee bench. "'Can you sew?' Scarm asked, and then, as Lindy gave him a puzzled look, he corrected himself. "'Leastways, can you sew skin without getting all squirmy?' "'Young Red's got a nasty slice in his back that won't close up right until it's been stitched. I got but the one hand, and the skipper's—well, he's not up to it. Are you ready for something like that?' Lindy looked into the elderly man's eyes and nodded. "'Then we'll fix him up when we stop for the night.' "'The skipper,' Lindy began, and then paused, lest she give offence. "'You noticed he's sort of like he was dreaming.' Lindy nodded again. "'I never seen him this way before. Now, he hasn't slept much since we left the village, cause he's blaming himself for everything. But don't you go making judgments on him. He'll be fine when you help him find those two lads.' "'Is that what Walt said I can do?' "'Well, lass, you've got a stone like young Astraea's, and a mind to see him, haven't you?' "'I hope it works out that way,' she said. "'It had better.' Not long after, the molly rose and fell to the waves of the open ocean in a gentle early evening breeze. Walt had piloted them along a narrow channel in the lee of an island so close to the eastern shore that it had seemed to be part of the mainland. They followed the waterway almost to the headlands that enclosed the big bay on which Charton occupied a small segment of shore. Then they had tacked out between the headlands, and coasted along the ocean's rocky shoreline of cliffs, topped by a fringe of wind-stunted trees, some of which extended down gullies towards the tide-line. "'You're not going to believe this, but you're just going to have to trust me,' said Walt to Roaring Jack. "'In a bit I want you to head straight for the shore.' We're going into a little cove you can't see till you're almost in it. We need an anchor or a killick to let go over the stern, and another for the bow. Get ready. Now, hard a starboard. A wordless rumble came from Roaring Jack, but he did as he was asked. The molly pitched slowly up and down as the waves raised her stern, pushing her towards the land. Red Ian stood in the stern beside the skipper, the killick dangling from one huge hand. Lindy looked for something that looked even vaguely like a cove, 
Reasoning that Walt would hardly wreck the Molly while he was aboard, she glanced at the faces of the crew and saw puzzled frowns. Damon shook his head as if the whole event was completely beyond him. As they drew closer to one of the gullies in the cliff, Lindy watched the green blur of vegetation become distinct trees and bushes. Touch to port. Enough. Now, steady as she goes. A gap in the foliage opened before them. There were rocks on either side, almost close enough for Skarm to touch with the boat-hook he had ready in his good hand. Walt took the killick from Red Ian and tossed it astern as if it were a toy. It splashed into the sea behind them as leaves brushed the sails on both sides. Then the molly's headway ceased as the crude anchor grabbed. Good. Now, Red, you got an anchor on the foredeck? Good. Toss her right up on shore, if you can. Then we'll even up and belay. They were in a bag-shaped cove. They tipped back their heads to look up its steep sides, green with ferns, bushes, and scrubby trees, all the way up to where the evening sky was darkening to purple. Ahead, a stream fell in three separate leaps down a cliff face twice the height of Molly's mast, finally splashing into calm water. Fresh water, good holding bottom, room to row around and head back out again. We can lie here, and nobody the wiser. Now, how's about some of the food and drink I brung ya? Walt's enthusiasm was contagious. Before long he had wedged a small barrel against the tiller and was drawing mugs of beer from it. Loaves of bread and lumps of cheese appeared from his capacious pack, along with a rounded, dark green bottle, which he passed to Roaring Jack. The skipper took a swig, coughed, brightened visibly, and passed the bottle to Skarm, who took a cautious sip. "'Fine stuff,' Skarm said to Walt. "'If we don't drink it all too quick, it'll make life a lot easier for Red here. The lass is going to stitch him up.' Red Ian looked dubiously from face to face, and took a generous gulp. His blue eyes opened very wide, and he reached for his mug of beer to cool the burn in his throat. "'That's the spirit,' said Walt. "'I'd like to know how this boat was waiting for us at the end of the secret passage,' said Damon. "'Ah, you're wondering if Walt was in league with someone, aren't you?' "'Well,' Damon began, "'were the horsemen looking for Damon and me at the black sheep?' Lindy asked. "'Aye.' But don't get ahead of me, story. What you missed was some hard and hasty words being said all round, as the folks from up north began demanding young Damon's hide. So, first off, I had to tell the skipper and crew here to get back aboard their boat on account of the fact they was wanting to join in the discussion that were taking place between some of me regular customs and the folks what came on the horses. So, while the molly made sail and headed over to me own private wharf, I took the newcomers back into the sheep, fed them a round or two, and tried to calm them down. Didn't work. The horsemen got to shouting things that was plenty rude, and some of me customers got a bit edgy, and then I had to straighten them all out. And when I was through, it weren't a good idea to let any of them go on drinking, so I shut her down, locked her up, and told them not to come back until they weren't going to get to fighting. "'Which is how you skinned your knuckles,' said Lindy. "'Can't fool you, can I, lass? "'Yeah, there was a tall young fellow who pulled a knife. "'Handy, but not quick enough. "'Very rude and insulting he was. "'When he was through, he weren't as pretty as when he came.' "'Carl?' Damon asked. "'Now you mention it, that's what the others called him.' "'Yes!' Damon exclaimed. "'I wish I'd seen it!' So now you think maybe you can trust this short, ugly innkeeper? 
"'Good enough for me, Walt,' said Damon. "'Anything else you'd like to know?' Walt asked. Damon grinned in admiration. "'How did you find this hole in the wall?' "'Near fell into her from above,' said Walt. "'More than a few years back I was exploring, and there it was. "'Never said nothing to nobody, so it stayed me little secret. "'Neat, isn't it?' Conversation flagged as they ate and drank. Lindy sipped at her beer, wondering how much stitching she would have to do. She found out soon enough. Skarm, having encouraged Red Ian to keep swigging at the bottle, eventually led the way below. He lit the hanging lantern so that its light fell on the bench where the big man lay. "'I'm fine, Skarm. Just let me have a little nap and belay that, Red. Sit up for a moment.' While Red Ian looked on solemnly, Skarm tenderly undid his shirt to expose a wide band of sailcloth wrapped around his big chest. The man's hands flapped in embarrassment. "'Just wait a bit. She's, um, the lass—' uh, "'The lass has cousins,' said Lindy, as she helped unwind the blood-soaked bandage. "'Here, soak it a bit,' said Skarm. He produced a wad of clean material from Walt's pack, which he moistened with beer. Gradually the bandage came away, exposing a cut that ran part way around Red Ian's body, a little above the height of his elbow. "'You were some lucky he didn't stick it all the way into you,' said Skarm. "'He tried. I felt it hit me ribs and then rattle across him. Twice. "'It looks like two clean cuts,' said Lindy, deliberately keeping her voice steady. "'Lucky tossed me into the sea, stung right sharp, but the bleeding mostly stopped after I got her back aboard and Skarm tied me up a bit. Now lie down and let the lass go to work.' "'I'll have another swig.' Whether it was the whisky or his determination not to show Lindy his pain, Red Ian lay still while she threaded a needle, ran it through the flame of the lamp, dipped the thread into the whisky, and with her lips tightly compressed began the bloody work. As Skarm sponged the edges of the cuts clean, Red Ian's teeth ground together audibly, but he said nothing. Lindy tied off the first stitch and looked into her patient's face. His eyes were a little out of focus, but he managed to grin, so she returned to her work. Stitch by stitch, she gradually pulled the cuts together. When she had tied the last knot, Skarm swiftly poured what was left of the whiskey over the length of the wound. Red Ian gasped. <gasps> I'll get you for that, Skarm. For sure. Lindy murmured sympathy as she helped him sit up so she could tie a new dressing round his body. Thanks, lass he muttered as she tied off the bandage. He lay back down and fell instantly asleep. "'He'll have a headache in the morning,' said Skarn. "'Now, let's make you comfortable for the night. How do you fancy sleeping under a canvas tented across the boom?' Lindy nodded as she cleaned up the remnants of the surgery. "'Anywhere will be just fine,' she said, "'especially if I can get ashore for a wash in that stream.' When she came up from the cabin, the little rowboat was waiting for her with Roaring Jack at the oars. He took her across to where the waterfall splashed into the bay, the falling water catching the last of the light, and then rowed away a few strokes and deliberately turned his back. A little while later he came to her quiet call to row her back to the molly. Lindy sat in the stern facing him. He took a couple of strokes and rested his oars. In the fading light she could see little more than his silhouette. "'Can you point us to the ship that's got the lads?' His hoarse whisper surprised her, so unlike his usual booming shout. 
I think so, but there are two ships, Walt says. Then we'll take them, one by one. He spoke with a ferocity, unlike everything she had heard from him so far. Lindy tried to look into his bearded face in the growing gloom, wondering about the big skipper's grasp on reality. He did not seem to understand that Astrea was not on the same ship as the Molly had encountered. She took a breath to explain, but decided that there was not enough time before they were back aboard, where the other men would almost certainly interrupt what she had to say. Roaring Jack's oars made soft, splashing noises in the quiet cove. When they reached the Molly, the crew and Damon were below in the cabin. They had stretched a sail from the port side, over the boom, and down to amidships on the cockpit sole, providing her with a tent-like space, in which another sail had been wadded into the semblance of a mattress. Amazingly, her cloak was also waiting for her, presumably from Walt's capacious backpack. She wished Roaring Jack good night, crawled into the tent they had made for her, and lay down, expecting to be restless with worry. The green glow from her bracelet lit the canvas above her head. She curled her hand over it protectively, and fell asleep. Lindy woke shivering. Fog swirled slowly around the cove, dripped from ropes and rigging, and slicked the decks. Below in the cabin she could hear the sound of men getting up, and soon she saw Roaring Jack's tousled head appear in the companionway. The skipper sniffed the air like a dog, his mouth half open. Mist droplets formed on his hair and beard. When she crawled out from behind the sail, he came up into the cockpit. "'You'll be wanting ashore to wash,' he said, pulling the little rowboat into position at the stern. Lindy kilted her skirt and climbed down into the boat. In a couple of strokes of Roaring Jack's oars, they were alone in the whiteness of the fog. Cocking his head on one side, the skipper listened for the continuous splash of the waterfall. A few more strokes, and they were almost under the falling water. The tide had covered the spot where she had stood the night before, but they found another flat rock for her to land. Roaring Jack rowed the boat away, and she was alone in the fog. As she stood ankle-deep in the cold, fresh water, she remembered waking beside Astrea on their way to the harbour. A stab of longing took her by surprise, bringing unexpected tears to her eyes. She bent down, scooped up a double handful of water, splashed it into her face, and gasped as the sudden cold chased the memory away. They were guided back to the molly by the murmur of voices. When Lindy climbed back into the cockpit, the improvised tent had been tidied away, and there were tempting smells coming from the cabin. "'Come on down, Lindy,' said Walt. "'There's hot food to be had.' "'Not as good as you'd cook, lass, but it'll keep body and soul together.' Lindy went below to where a lantern and a little stove had driven out the damp. The small space was well filled. Red Ian and Walt were shoulder to shoulder on one side of the hanging table, the difference in their height no longer noticeable when they were both sitting. The red-haired giant offered her a shy smile. He seemed no worse from either her stitching or the whisky he had drunk the night before. Skarm and Damon looked up at her from the other side and squashed closer together so that she had room to join them. Mugs steamed beside loaves of bread, and Skarm poked at a hissing fry-pan of bacon on the tiny stove clamped onto the bulkhead, its chimney disappearing through the cabin roof. Lindy sat, grateful for the warmth. She had pushed back the sleeves of her shirt to wash, and was rolling them back down before reaching for her mug, when she was aware that all four of the men were staring at the bracelet on her arm. Mm, it's right strong today, said Walt. Would it be pointing at the ship? 
Roaring Jack asked as he sat on the companionway steps. For sure, said Walt. Can you tell how far away? asked Damon. Lindy noticed that sleep, food, and the company of the Molly's crew had worked wonders on him. Even the glowing green stone had not shaken him as it had done in the castle. She shook her head. But it's never been this bright before, except when Astraea first lit it. So them murdering pirates can't be far away now. Damon blinked as Roaring Jack's voice boomed in the crowded cabin. Lindy saw approving expressions on both Skarm and Red Ian's faces, but she did not share their optimism. Right. Mug up and shake down. We'll be on our way for the lads, soon as Walt here can take us back out to sea. Serious eating and drinking replaced conversation, which was acceptable to Lindy in that she did not want any more questions that she could not answer. There seemed to her to be too much likely to go wrong. Which ship? What then? If Astraea was aboard, was he a prisoner? And if it were the other ship, the piratical one described by Skarm and confirmed by Walt, would the Molly's other crew members be aboard? Roaring Jack continued to talk about the two boys, but she wondered whether he was thinking only of Cam and Yan, as if he did not grasp that Astraea was alive. Skarm appeared to have understood her connection with Astraea, but Roaring Jack and Red Ian seemed driven by a desire for revenge that made them deaf to anything but what they wanted to hear. Before she could think of a way to break in on the male solidarity that had turned the four of them into a female excluding group, they were all busy cleaning up the breakfast and climbing back up on deck, excusing themselves politely as they passed her in a way that was solicitous, but which also completely ignored her as a person. Soon she was alone in the cabin with only Skarn, who was dumping the remains of the tea into the stove. Hissing steam curled around him, making him look even older. Ian, Lindy began, It's all right, lass. I know there's two ships, and Estrella's on one of them. The skipper's got tide and current behind him on this one, and that man Walt is blowing in his sails. A heavy fist pounded on the cabin top. On deck, you two! Ah, uh, the skipper wants us. Better move quick. Irrational, she murmured as she climbed the companionway, bewildered by the contradiction between Skarm's understanding of the situation and his apparent willingness to follow Roaring Jack on an adventure that she doubted would end well. Her usual equanimity deserted her in the face of so many unknowns, as suddenly the thought struck her that Astraea might not want to see her. The thought took her breath away, and even when she had forced herself to inhale, the idea would not leave her. A series of reasons tumbled together in her mind. He might have met other women and lost interest in her. He would have no time for her, now he had his inheritance. He thought she had only been hunting for a baby to take back to Mattress. At each possibility she became more downcast. Clenching her teeth, she started up the companionway. She arrived in the cockpit as leaves fluttered briefly overhead, indistinct in the mist. She drew her cloak around her just in time to be drenched by mist droplets falling from the branches disturbed by the molly's mast. As she watched, the last branch shook a spray onto the boat's stern and disappeared behind them. The molly started to rise and fall to smooth ocean swells. Roaring Jack stood at the tiller, and Redian and Walt each worked a long oar. Fog closed in all around them, now drifting so close that the oar blades were invisible now parting to give a glimpse of grey sea beyond the oar's reach. Lindy looked up for the sun, but the grey mist was a dome over them. The sails hung limp, 
jerking slightly to the pull of the oars. Take a look, lass. How are we heading? The fog deadened roaring Jack's voice, making him sound almost like any other man. She took a couple of steps to stand beside roaring Jack, the tiller between them, and held out her arm for him to see. He nodded and made a slight course change until the spear of light on the stone pointed exactly along the length of the boat. Easy, lads. We're on a falling tide. She'll ghost along till the fog lifts. The two mismatched men tossed their oars and stowed them on either side of the cabin. Damon sat on the cabin top, facing Lindy. He looked a question at her when Roaring Jack's head turned, and she answered with a shrug. Below him in the companionway, Scarn caught the exchange and nodded at her. She decided that he probably intended her to be encouraged, but her analysis of the situation was simple and discouraging. They were sailing with next to no wind to find one, possibly two, hostile ships they could not see, one of which was led by a murderous pirate, and they were guided by a green stone whose workings none of them understood. "'Lass,' said Scarm suddenly, "'best keep that bracelet dry.' She shrugged her cloak around her. Roaring Jack nodded approval. "'Now and again I'll ask, and you can show me the way.' The molly rose and fell gently with a rocking motion that made Lindy yawn and want to close her eyes to the grey-white world around them. Pushing away the thought that the cabin was still warm and dry, she stood beside the skipper and braced herself against the port quarter of the cockpit, occasionally poking one bare arm out of the folds of her cloak so that he could see her green stone. The sameness of the fog made distance unguessable. Only her increasingly cold feet on the wet deck told her that time was passing. "'Now, lass,' said Roaring Jack. Lindy woke from a reverie of Estrella and Gar, evaluating what they had been painting. Their heads tipped up to look at the dome above them. Suddenly aware of where she was, she held out her arm and looked around. The fog was whiter, the circle of water around the molly much larger, and when she looked up, there was a diffuse brightness from the invisible sun. The main sheet, which had been dipping into the water, tightened as the mainsail swung to starboard. It bobbed and flapped a couple of times, and then filled. Behind her, water chuckled around the molly's rudder. Roaring Jack hauled on the main sheet, as Redian did the same for the jib. The boat seemed to come alive, as did her crew. Heads came up, scanning an increasing spread of sea all around them. Lindy held out her arm once more. The spear of light, which had been consistently steady, now pointed slightly to port. Roaring Jack worked sheet and rudder, bringing the molly back on course. "'Sail! Dead ahead!' shouted Walt. Lindy gasped as the bow of a huge black ship appeared through the mist, its sails disappearing up into the whiteness above, its long bowsprit a threat aimed at the molly's sails. Roaring Jack thrust the tiller away from him, pinning Lindy into the corner of the cockpit, her arm still raised for him to see her bracelet. She had only a moment to notice the curl of water at the big ship's forefoot as it passed with a rush, followed so close by the long, black, sea-stained hull that she instinctively flinched away. The spear of light in her green stone swung around to point at the center of the ship. The molly lurched and returned to her course with a jerk. Behind her, as the fog closed around the blunt black stern, she could hear shouting, but could not make out the words. Close, muttered Scarn. We'll be closer still and right soon, said Roaring Jack. 
Lindy looked from one face to the other, but could see nobody who shared her conviction that Roaring Jack's plan was sheer madness. You have been listening to the Estrella Trilogy, Book Two, The Men of the Sea, written and read by Seymour Hamilton. All three books are available in electronic and paper formats from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Chapters. Visit astreatrilogy.com for more about Astrea's world. This audio version is licensed under the United States Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0.